Uh, if you would, please turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 again. We'll, we'll pick up in verse 8, which we, we partially discovered this last week, uh, uh, talking about qualifications. And, uh, but listen closely here, please, beginning in verse 8. And um, we'll see that immediately after giving the uh, prerequisites for elder, we see that of deacon that the apostle adds to. Beginning in verse 8, it says, Deacons likewise, meaning like elders, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are above reproach. Men, uh, Women likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be the husband of one wife, uh, good managers of their children and their households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Believe it or not, in this passage we essentially see about all there is to see about deacons, the official position of deacon in the church, as Paul puts it forward. This is, this is about it. And it's very unlike the office of elder, where we find in many different passages and many scriptures what their duties are, what their responsibilities are. Found in many different places uh, describing their role of oversight. But beyond this passage here and a related fragment in Acts 6, we're given very little about the specifics of a deacon. As their name implies, they simply serve. We do know in Scripture, deacons, uh, as revealed in Scripture, don't make oversight decisions because there's, there's no requirement in Scripture for them to have to interpret Scripture. They, um, as we learned last week, elders must. They must be able to interpret Scripture in order to govern the church. Um, they must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict so the church can be led in harmony with the Bible. Uh, with, with deacons, we don't see that requirement because they're servants. But although we find very few um, details about church deacons in the Bible, we find a whole wealth of information about service in the Bible. And, and service, we know, is what every Christian must do. You know, there's no alert, illusion in Scripture anywhere about a Christian who doesn't serve their local church. No illusion to that. Romans 12.1 says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Service is worship. And, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for everyone. And again, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, and each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Employ it in serving one another. So without exception, every true Christian is divinely gifted uh, by, uh, for mutual edification, for service, for the body of Christ. We all join in serving and building up the body of Christ. 
And this is why we so strongly encourage in men's and, and ladies' discipleship that, that we adopt a ministry of some kind. Some role of service that you can say, I am serving Christ in his church. Because really, when, when you look at it, how could you be obedient to Christ, to his words, to his word? How, how could we consider ourselves disciples of Christ or imitators of Christ if we were also not serving? How could you do that? It would be impossible. For our scripture reading said, For the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. And, and I don't want to insist or impose on unreasonable ex- expectations here. There are certainly seasons in life that you're either not able or available. Sometimes both. You know, ability can be compromised by physical health. Can be compromised by hospitalization. Age is a factor. Especially later in life, sometimes as we age, one of our greatest ministries is for the prayer and the edification, the encouragement of the other saints. These these are immensely valuable as ministries of the church. I I look at Walter Kennedy over there. Every, Every Sunday, just a smile. He's encouraging. His words are positive. He's a blessing. That's a ministry to the church. And, and, and service, it can also be limited by availability. We, we know that. Uh, it could be a family situation. It could be military service where you're separated for a time. Uh, it could be due to unique demands in a person's occupation now and then. So availability can be compromised for a season. Ability can be compromised. But service is not compromised for excuses. There aren't just excuses to say, you know, I just, I just don't feel like it. You don't see that in scripture but we we observe it you don't see it taught or exhorted in scripture we we are to edify we're to encourage there is a spiritual battle against the flesh our flesh wants us to be distracted our flesh wants to be involved with other pursuits our flesh would rather be other places many times we'd rather be doing hobbies of different types it it drags us away from service And, and the world allures us Satan wants to distract us. Satan wants to distract us from service. He puts out decoys everywhere. He'll get us involved with all kinds of other things on our weekends, other times of service. He lays out these snares that we get entangled in. We get wrapped up. I've been wrapped up in them too. And because of the obvious lure of those snares, the enticement of the world, we spend a lot of our time in empty pursuits. Just vanity. Just vanity, waste a lot of time. And scripture, therefore, urges us to stimulate one another to service. Stimulate to service. We see this in Titus chapter 2, where we are reminded in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are what? Zealous for good works, good deeds. These things, Paul says, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Know every single one of us 
is commanded to put off these unfruitful deeds, the unprofitable deeds, to resist the lures, the desires of the world. And, and, and because instead we're supposed to devote ourselves to Christian service, we are given a category of people who seem to have mastered this. They, they're really good at it. They're to be commended for it. They're, in a sense, to be recognized. Not, not because they want commendation. They're not seeking it. Most of these high achievers, that they loathe even the thought of being recognized. They don't want to be recognized by the church, but the church recognizes them nonetheless, not for themselves, but so that the rest of us can see them as a model of service. So we have models out there of service and then ourselves be compelled to follow that example. These people are called deacons. Deacons. They're excellent at service. And, and, and though this biblical term deacon simply implies a servant, quite literally, we said last week, waiter at a table. That's what the word implies. In this passage, it denotes a special category of servant. A special category. He is a recognized servant. He is a servant among servants. And 1 Timothy 3.13 tells us that those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing in the faith, a high standing, a great confidence. Paul says these have consistently served well. They're deacons. And because of that, they achieve this high standing in the faith. That means they're recognized by the rest of us for what they've done for the church, their service to the church. And you might ask yourself, oh, in what type of service exactly are we recognizing them for in scripture it doesn't say it doesn't say scripture doesn't tell us it never specifies and in my observation that has to be because there's no way you could exhaust all the ways in which you can serve your local church Paul isn't going to put it down in details and limit us it could literally be anything that is beneficial to the body of Christ and, and they excel for things like caring for the sick. They might serve in cleaning and maintaining the facility and grounds where people come to worship Jesus Christ together. They might serve us in, in uh, children's programs, doing all kinds of things. They might excel uh, in spiritual music, leading us in worship. And they're probably not limited to one thing. Well, when you find a person who has a servant's heart, they love to serve, they generally don't limit themselves to one area of ministry. You're going to end up finding them everywhere. They're woven throughout the church. And, and, and uh, their, their battle cry is, what do you need done? Not concerned as much as what they want to do is, what do you need done? And, and uh, they might be setting up tables one week. They might be cleaning the windows the next week. They might be meeting a financial need on Monday, and they might be holding a sign on Wednesday or Friday. They do all kinds of service. What they do is noticeable. It's admirable. People see it. And these people make the church go. You know, last week I, I told you with, with pastoring elders, the elders who have the responsibility to shepherd, pastor, um, that without prayer, ministry of the word, uh, you know, we, without God in it, we don't have an oar in the water. We can't make anything go unless God has, has 
uh, through His grace, allowed it to happen. And, and we're dependent upon it. So we don't have an oar in the, in the water. But who do we think opens the doors early on Sunday morning? Who is it that we think um, prepares the communion glasses and fills them so they're ready for us? Who is it that calls the contractors when a door is off the hinges? These types of things. Who is it that refurbishes the baptismal when the wood was rotten? I don't know if you've seen it recently. By the way, the baptismal is refurbished. It looks great. Some people were asking about baptism. Another one this weekend was saying, you know, how, how's it going? Are we seeing people saved? I said, well, you know, last fall we had, we had one round of baptisms, and we had to go right back in a month later and do eight more. So that, that, it, it's God's working. We know God is working. People are making that profession of faith through water baptism that they trusted in Jesus Christ. And uh, now that about, about the end of the year we started replacing some of the stuff in the baptismal, I think it's about ready again. And we've got other people now that are asking that would like to be baptized. So if you are considering that, please come forward, talk to Pastor Weiler and I. We'd like to hear about why you would like to be baptized. That's a good thing to clarify. What is the reason? So we'll be looking uh, through that. And as the weather especially gets warmer now, uh, we'd like to do another baptism. Um, these people that fix things, make things go, if there's an oar in the water, they're it. They're the ones that are making the good ship Port St. Lucie Bible Church go. Praise the Lord for them. We're thankful for them. They perform all kinds of tasks, which frees up the pastors and elders so we can be increasingly devoted to prayer, the ministry of the word, the oversight of the church. Last week we briefly encountered what many consider a prototype of deacon in Acts 6. You don't have to change, uh, turn there if you don't want to. At least keep a ribbon in 1 Timothy 3. But we discussed a, what's known as a prototype of a deacon. And, and, and there, there were seven men, seven ministers, who waited on tables for Greek-speaking women. And by serving meals, they preserved overseers from being distracted from prayer, the ministry of the word. There are a few facts about these seven that are noteworthy as we look at it. They were all men. They were all full of the spirit and wisdom. They were full of faith. They were all of good reputation, and they were put in charge of a specific task by the overseers. We see all of that there. It's all very strikingly similar to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we're at today. Um, this is why most theologians consider Acts 6 as a prototype, an early type of what would be announced later on in Scripture as a deacon. I agree with that. And some of us sometimes could, I've heard people, could be tempted to say in, in different circles and pastors' conferences and stuff, well, there it is. We know exactly what a deacon does from that. It's, a, it's finished. It's done. We know exactly from Acts 6. Not so fast. No, we don't. We also have to be very honest in what Acts 6 does not say. What it doesn't say. It does not give us any indication of how many Greek-speaking widows were involved. Don't know. It does not say for how long this ministry continued. Don't know. Doesn't even say that these seven men worked together every day of the week. 
For all that we know, there could have been one man assigned to each day of the week to distribute food to a dozen women. For all that we know. We don't know how it functioned. Um, Acts 6 provides no indication that there was any kind of council formed of these deacons, any kind of board. There's no indication they were delegating any further authority beyond handing out food. They were not autonomous. They weren't self-governing because Scripture says that they were still they were put in task by the apostles, by the overseers. They were still under oversight. And as we discussed last week, uh, later on, when we get to Acts chapter 15, which talks about the circumcision and, and the council in Jerusalem, that when Paul and Barnabas came from Antioch with this question for the church, uh, is there going to be do we need circumcision? Do we not? Paul knew the answer already. He was getting affirmation. They came to seek out a decision and a declaration from the apostles and elders, not from apostles and deacons. They came for a, a clear rendering of what the church taught from the apostles and elders. So much more has been read into this text in Acts chapter six and First Timothy three. And, and added to a deacon's function by tradition than what the word actually provides. Some stuff has been read into it. And, and we aren't told exactly the duties of deacons in Scripture anywhere, except possibly in Acts 6, where they did food distribution. That's the duties. And, and we can conclude from that that, that the deacons served in that, in that manner. As I mentioned earlier, 1 Timothy 3 provides no specific description of their, function, of their function at all other than they were simply designated servants, known for their service. The purpose of Acts 6 itself, historically, it's to demonstrate these servants were assigned a task by the overseers so that the overseers would not be distracted from their ministry of prayer and of the word and from overseeing. Acts 6, we want to look closely, it doesn't even offer us an ongoing process or method of deacon selection. Not perpetual. Instead, we find that the apostles were responding to a specific situation in Acts 6. The apostles were addressing a legitimate complaint by a small minority of a marginalized group that existed within a larger community. There was a complaint. There were Greek-speaking, Hellenistic widows. They're in Jerusalem, and they were being treated unfairly by the broader Jewish community because they spoke differently. They talked differently. And they were being looked over. They were being neglected. We can surmise that these particular widows were probably elderly. And you do that because... We even know from when our study in Ruth last year that even in Jerusalem, even of the Jews, that, that a woman had to reach a certain age. E even with, with Ruth and Naomi, the daughter-in-law had to work to provide for those two. They had, there, there had to be work. There wasn't just an ongoing sustenance. And later on we will read in 1 Timothy, as we get into later chapters, that the younger widows, Paul exhorted them to remarry. And the older widows that were to be part of, of some type of sustenance, which we'll talk about later, they were also to be recognized if they were going to receive ongoing as servants of the church. They had criteria they were to be recognized as in order to receive that. 
And they also had to have no other source of income they receive, uh, in order to receive assistance for any ongoing period of time. So these are probably older women, Greek-speaking. Acts chapter 6 tells us these older Greek-speaking widows were overlooked. Actually, the authorized version says they were neglected. They were neglected. And that is correct. Because they were being neglected on purpose because they were a minority. They had no voice. They had no advocacy because they were a Jewish subculture in Jerusalem. and They were Greek-speaking. Everybody else was speaking either Aramaic or Hebrew. And, and we all know how the Orthodox Jews, how, how they loved to historically, uh, uh, they loved their purity. They loved purity. Um, they despised anyone who came across as different. When really the Greek speaking were, were, that was more common in the Greek world, in the Roman world. But the Jewish people, the, the Jewish numbers there neglected them, overlooked them. And because of this inherent discrimination, the apostles determined there would be identified seven men whom the widows trusted in order to serve them their daily food allotment. And the apostles said, We will lay our hands on them, we will put them in charge of this task. And the apostles essentially ask, point out seven who we can trust with this task. Give us seven men who we can trust to make sure this gets set right. And, and it comes no surprise then that all seven of these men that, they, that were chosen had Greek names. Every single one of them had a Greek background. They could speak the Greek language, they had a Greek heritage. So they not only spoke the widow's language, they would have held a sincere compassion for them. They would have had concern because they were from the same heritage. They understood them. So, so that method of selection, that was for a specific situation. It's not provided as a permanent model of selection for every church age. Where leadership, you know, says, well, you know, folks, just come up with some people. Why don't we just randomly come up with a few folks, find out who are your good friends, who do you get along with, who do you play chess with, who do you like best? And, and, and where it becomes eventually a popularity contest. Who can we find who we like best? And uh, in our message last week, not only that, where, where people are just selected, where the overseers say, you know what, I don't even know these people. I don't know if I can work with them. I don't know if they're cooperative. I don't know if they hold the same doctrine. All these things have to be answered. That's why we see what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3. They have to be in harmony with the current leadership. You can't just have folks that are popular if they don't hold to the same doctrine, if they don't hold to the same principles, the same vision as the leadership holds. And um, in our message last week, Scripture demonstrates consistently that the current generation of leadership identifies the next generation. By how they act, how they behave, what type of doctrine they hold. Are they reasonable? Are they scripturally qualified? Are they cooperative? Are they in harmony with those who are in leadership right now? That's what we learned last week with elders. And, and that appointment, which we call a nomination in our culture, uh, after that they're placed before the congregation for an affirmation vote. This is essentially how we've been doing it here. 
essentially how we've been doing it here all along. Uh, historically, it's been done at our church. And deacons are identified. They are, they are um, in a sense, tested for who they are, character, above reproach, knowledge, uh, um, not in a way that is a teaching knowledge, but do they line up with us doctrinally? Do they believe the same things that we believe about Jesus Christ? That has to be flushed out. And um, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, as we did with the elders, it says, deacons likewise. Deacons likewise, in the same way. Paul indicates they must be men of dignity. They must hold to the mystery of the faith, which just means they have to be examined by current leadership to see whether they believe the same stuff. Not rocket science. Do you believe what we believe about Jesus? Is he eternally God who became manifest in the flesh? These are questions that, have, that over time are answered. And, and verse 10 puts it this way. They, they first must be tested. It, it's not random. There's nothing random about this. And, and just as scripture demonstrates that elders are identifying the next generation of elders, they likewise, with the deacons, they, they identify those as deacons who consistently display the biblical characteristics of a deacon. Because we see them. We see them when, when leadership is here. They see who's out working on on things. They see who's out doing the work. They see who's showing up early, who's fixing, who's serving, who has character. They're here. And they're easily identified over time. They're consistent. They're reliable. They're trustworthy. And, and when we believe we have a qualified candidate that we can work with to assign tasks, one who would be recognized, we would place deacon candidates before the congregation in, in exactly the same way we would an elder candidate for affirmation. For affirmation. Request an affirmation as basic form. This is how we've been doing it all along. We identify qualified overseers and servants, elders and deacons, who are of good reputation. They're spiritually mature. Their personalities are cooperative. They hold the same doctrine. Leadership makes a prayerful decision, a prayerful choice concerning qualifications and everything else. And then we place them before the congregation. See, does anybody know anything we need to know about these folks? We wait on an affirmation from the folks. And the congregation says, should say if they're spiritually qualified and if they've been around, the congregation should say an affirmative, amen. We like him. We want him. That's a good decision. That's a wise choice. They stamp their amen on it and they're approved. So they provide a stamp of affirmation of what's been revealed. Folks, God's word is really wise on this stuff. Really, really wise. Some churches have a method of appointment of overseers and deacons, elders and servants. that functions more like what we're seeing on television right now. Yeah. Yeah, the political process. There are churches, and probably some of you have been members of them, that work on a political basis. And... Uh, it's a place where people aren't nearly as concerned about the person's character or their qualifications. And they're picking somebody that they like for some reason or another. Someone they're close to for one reason or another. The church doesn't function like the world. And, the, and Christ's church is not shepherded by popularity or politics. Someone that's popular. You don't find that in the Bible. You find people who are qualified and are courageous. And willing to stand up for the truth. Not a sweet talker. 
Many of you have probably been acquainted with this type of thing at another church. And fortunately, at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, currently, and anything proposed in the future isn't going to reflect a political type situation. Here's why. Here's why we're going to function on continue as we have in scriptural qualifications and nomination. The challenge that every church faces is that leadership is always dealing with people's preferences. Always dealing with people's preferences. And, and we aren't talking about doctrine here. You know, we can all have the same doctrine and be, all be in harmony and all be saved and yet still have different preferences. You can have a perfectly sound church doctrinally and still run into a problem of division due to preferences. Due to preferences. And tragically, you know, unbiblical forms of ecclesiology, and that, that just simply means church government. Uh, they are in a large part a reason why we see so many churches struggling with division. Poor ecclesiology. Poor models of church government. And when you have a church where decisions are made by politics, candidates, you always have a segment that is disappointed because their preference, they think, is better. Often the result is, well, a couple of us are just going to run for the board. A couple of us are just going to run for it, and we're going to get enough people together, essentially a campaign. And we're going to get enough people where we think our decision was better and we're going to reverse the injustice. I'm glad we don't see this here. I'm explaining why we don't. And this always creates division in the flock. Um, there will always be a portion of voters who will say, you know, I don't really care that Bill isn't scripturally qualified or, or that he's only here once or twice a month. I just have heard over the grapevine that, you know, he's going to make a big push for pews. And you know what? I really like pews. And you know, this guy will put in pews, and he's promised to put in pews if he can just get some leverage in order to push pews. That's, that's the way those types of things work. You've heard about the churches that split over the color of the carpet. It happens. They have a vote, 49 to 51%, and 49% of the people are not happy with the carpet. It, it happens all the time. And uh, they think their preference is better. And you end up with three guys on the board who want pews, three guys that want to keep the chairs and pay off the debt, and, and there's no harmony. And uh, nothing gets ex accomplished except division. Unity of the bodies I shared last week is a direct reflection of the unity in the leadership. A direct reflection. Just as unified as the male leadership is on the elder board, along with the deacons who agree with them, that unity is going to manifest itself in the congregation. You never, let me just put it this way. You never want church decisions or selections for leaders to become a contested convention. That'd be really bad. Really bad. Um, leadership nominates candidates who they're confident meet the biblical qualifications. They feel are reasonable. They can work with. They can cooperate. And they ask the membership to affirm the decision preserves unity. I have a quick illustration here. When I was in the process of being selected, the pastor of this church, church documents required that there be only one candidate for pastor at a time. That's it. You're going to go through one person at a time. And our governing board appointed a, a committee to do legwork of the search to provide recommendations to the governing board. And at the end, 
The board selected the pastoral replacement whom they determined had biblical qualifications, whom had a personality and demeanor that they could work with in unity for the greater good, greater furtherance of the church. And Nathan made this announcement to the congregation. He said, we are very apologetic, but under the circumstances, I think John is the best we can do. (laughs) Now, Rita and I came to meet everybody. I was presented before the membership, preached a couple times. There was great disappointment. But the people followed the leadership, the recommendation, the congregation affirmed. It was a miraculous act of God. We're so happy to be here. And I believe it was about 69 out of 71 or something like that. But at no time in our bylaws will a candidate, whether a deacon, whether an elder, senior pastor, no, at no time will a candidate be placed against another candidate. You don't put them against one another. Because you have this 55 to 45 decision. Almost half of your congregation leaves disgruntled because I like the other guy. I wanted the other senior pastor. We only got 45%. It's an injustice. That's the way politics works. And this is why the Bible reveals that churches aren't led by politics. They're not led that way. They're led by leadership. And the leadership makes prayerful, informed decisions. The congregation affirms by saying, Amen. Oh, man. So in reality, though we, we are explaining why we do what we do in this church, any proposed constitution uh, changes, they will be voted on by the congregation. Any proposed um, bylaw changes, nothing substantial would change in how we select leadership in that way. Same as the way we've done it. Um, an important question remains regarding our topic of deacons before we close. Going back to service now. Since deacons in the Bible are not required, required to be able to teach doctrine, since they do not, as we see in Scripture, exercise authority as overseers, that's what the elders do, can, per se, can a woman be a deacon? Well, hang with me. Hang with me. Can a woman be recognized as a servant among servants? It's a very good question. It'll take a couple paragraphs to get to the answer. So please wait. Don't throw anything. In Romans chapter 16, the Apostle Paul praises a woman named Phoebe. Stating, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is in St. Crea. That you receive her in the Lord in a worthy manner, as of all the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well, the Apostle Paul says. So when Paul identifies Phoebe here as a servant in the church of St. Crea, that word servant there is deacon. So Paul is saying, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon of the church in Sancria. The answer, though, is inconclusive. And here's why. Because the, the term deacon, it's just the common biblical term for servant. Uh, you'd find it in many places in scripture. So, so Paul talking about Phoebe as a servant here, as we all are, in some way a servant, uh, possibly not recognized, but talks of Phoebe here, 
Uh, is she is just a regular servant? Has she been a good servant? Or is she a designated servant? We aren't sure. We aren't sure. There's such limited information on deacons. We don't know. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, people also bring up that, that in verse 11, it's sandwiched right in the middle of this description of church deacons. Right in the center of it, it says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And, and some people take this term likewise with the women here to, to um, indicate that these women are also likewise recognized deacons. Uh, essentially, they, they would be what some churches call deaconesses. You've heard that word before. i got to be honest. I personally don't have a dog in this hunt. Uh, because um, the tradition that I originate from, it, it says that these women, in verse 11, they were probably the wives of the deacons and possibly elders. Um, some versions even translate it wives, but that is an interpretation. The literal word there is woman. Women likewise. Um, but it says that the wives of elders or deacons, in my opinion, would be dignified, not malicious, gossips, etc. Because of their nature of their relationship with their husbands who are leading. That's what I think it's pointing to. Um, you know, be, because of the nature of leadership, wives will, will eventually discover, uh, wives of leaders will discover things that a lot of other people don't. So they're not to be gossiping about it. They're to be dignified about it. Uh, there's obviously many things that uh, Don or Rita or Andrea or other wives of leaders will never hear. There are some things that they hear that others don't hear. And, and that there are things that they will learn. So they need to be wise, likewise. They need to be dignified, likewise. Um, we need to remember in leadership selection... The character and personality of the wife also must be considered. It also, according to the Bible, it must be considered. So I believe this implies myself that wives of deacons and elders are what are in view here. And I think when they talk about Phoebe, I think they're talking about just a, a good servant. I'm not thinking it was an official recognized position. I could be wrong. Would I have accepted a pastoral call to a church that recognizes women as non-leading, non-authoritative, non-teaching over men, deaconesses. Could I have done that? Personally, in my convictions, I could have done that. As long as they weren't overseeing, as long as they weren't teaching and taking authority over men, which we know Scripture does not allow, um, I could have done that. Could I have accepted a call to a church that allows a woman to be a pastor over men? No. That would never happen. Scripture says that that women shall not teach nor exercise authority over a man. So, so women elders can't be reconciled to scripture. Deaconesses, if there's a church across the road that has them and they don't rule, they aren't overseers, I'm not going to cast stones across the road at them. Uh, regardless of your opinion about deaconesses, and here's, here's the meat right here. Officially recognized deacons are a role model of servitude that should drive every one of us to be better servants. Every single one of us. And as far as that title is concerned, God's not concerned about titles, folks. God's not concerned about titles. Titles don't make the man or the woman. God sees and weighs the heart. 
A whole lot of people out there have become pastor and elder and deacon whom God will not reward in eternity as to regards as their behavior and role as a pastor or deacon. The title doesn't, isn't no shoe in. It's the heart. And there are many in this world who will hold that title of elder and pastor who are scripturally qualified, who are not scripturally qualified, and they won't receive the shepherd's reward that we read about in 1 Peter. They're not going to get it. The chief shepherd appears in that day. I didn't see anything that I thought in your heart was regarded as building up the church. Same with deacons. So likewise, if you have a servant's heart, serve well, folks. Serve well. Uh, It's nice to have titles, deaconesses, deacon, elder, whatever. But if you're a woman, if your church doesn't utilize the title of deaconess, serve well. Serve well. If you're a man and you've never been affirmed as a deacon in your church and you're like, you know, I really think that I would qualify as that, but no one's ever told me that. Think you might deserve it. Serve well. The title isn't going to make a difference in the end. God is going to weigh the heart. God's going to see what you've done. Because Christ is going to award you uh, on how you served his body, not according to what title you were given by man. No, you may never have your photo on a website, calls you deacon. If you've served well, you will hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things, he says. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen? Is that going to be a great day? And you will be rewarded by the one who rewards justly, regardless of what you've been called. Christ is coming quickly, folks. Reading Revelation 22, Christ says he's going to come. He's going to render to every man what is due him. That's good. You're going to render what's due. Christ is just. He is, he's honest. He has complete integrity. Follow his example as a servant. Strive to behave in a manner where you will be recognized by your church as a servant. A servant among servants. Christ will be pleased. You'll be pleased when he returns. Let's pray. Dear Father, we're so grateful for servants of your church, Lord, the servant hearts that you give. Lord, as you, as you regenerate our heart with the Holy Spirit and you, and you turn us on to you and, and, and we turn us on to one another and we serve, Lord, we give. We give of our time, Lord. We sacrifice ourselves, uh, not out of duty, but out of love, Lord. So we love you. Lord, you've done so much for us in dying for our sins and then rising from the dead, Lord. We honor you in everything that we do. And I pray that everyone, Lord, here would be be encouraged to be a good diakonos, a good deacon, Lord, a servant, and even a servant among servants, Lord. That we'd all look forward to your return, Lord, and, and not look away in shame when you come. But look at your coming and seeing you in glory, Lord God, and praising you. As you come for us, Lord. Bless our church. Bless our week, Lord. Encourage us and strengthen us. Lord, help us to love you evermore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.